This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Today in the show, we're going to see how local music venues are faring under Washington's extended stay home, stay healthy order. We'll hear from Seattle's Clockout Lounge, Tractor Tavern, The Crocodile, and Nectar Lounge. But first, we have an update from Seattle's Rebar music venue. Rebar's owner, Dane Garfield Wilson, announced Saturday evening that he's moving forward with this plan. Putting the rebar on hiatus and shutting down permanently in that location and reopening in fall of 2021 in the south end of Seattle. He announced that Rebar will be taking an 18-month hiatus. In conversations I've had with him recently, he says he's been having to pay $10,000 a month to keep Rebar afloat without any income coming in during the coronavirus. On top of all that, his building has been for sale for a while. His rent has been skyrocketing in recent years while high-rise residential units go up around him. And this all comes as Rebar recently celebrated its 30th anniversary this year. Rebar has a history in the city. Nirvana's album release show for Nevermind was there. The drag performer Dina Martina launched their career there. Coming up, we'll hear about the venue's history with KEXP DJ Riz Rollins. But first, let's take a visit. KEXP Sarlis Metcalf took a trip to Rebar one Sunday night before coronavirus hit and brought back this story about the community there. I enter Rebar around 9 p.m. There's chairs set up, a piano on stage, and one mic. It's a karaoke-style night called Dorothy's Piano Bar, a weekly piano cabaret where the public can come in, bring a song, and sing show tunes with a live piano accompaniment. There aren't many people in the room, and it's dark. This is the end of the show. There's a quick changeover, and an hour later, Flammable starts. It's a weekly staple that claims the title of longest-running house music night on the West Coast. Full disclosure, I've DJed Flammable before, and there's nothing else like it. It's a house music night every Sunday... Rebar hosts an eclectic mix of shows, drum and bass, movie screenings, drag performances, though they are most well-known for tonight. Rebar is, I would probably say, one of the most important dance, dancing, underground dance music sanctuaries for our community up here in the Northwest. That's Wesley Holmes, 24-year resident DJ of Flammable. If you look at the history of Rebar, it's always been about providing a safe environment where you can come, be who you are, wear what you want to wear, dance how you want to dance. Tonight is a great example of this. Wesley dives deeper into the scene. You know, on any given night, you're going to get a great mix of, uh, a great mixed crowd. You know, you're not just going to get a straight crowd. You're not just going to get a gay crowd. You're going to get a full-on mix. You're going to get, like, for tonight, for instance, you're going to see b-boys out here. You're going to see break dancers. You're going to see just, you know, you're going to see some indie kids. You're going to just see some really, like, techno kids. You know, you're going to see just a great mix of kids from all across the uh, community, you know, on, on any dance spectrum. DJing tonight is Khadija Streets, Fufu, Griffin Girl, Romero, Brian Lyons, and the Wonder Twins. I'm Julie Herrera. And I'm Christina Ortiz. And we play together as the Wonder Twins? Yes. We are the Wonder Twins. Together we're the Wonder Twins. Both Julie and Christina are sitting in the green room. They first started coming to Rebar before they DJed. Here's Julie. So this is definitely where I saw like my first female DJ playing to a crowd. 
owning the room and rocking it. And so this was definitely where I've kind of like got, uh, where I found my inspiration to pursue my career as a DJ as well. Christina hadn't even heard house music before coming to Flammable. It made me move. It made me dance. It, it, it just, um, I felt accepted because during that time I was, I was coming out as a lesbian and I felt, I felt accepted and I felt comfortable and I felt like it, right away it was um, like family. Both members of the Wonder Twins agree. Julie says spaces like Rebar are integral to her community. A space like Rebar, it, 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 means, it means the world. It means that it's everything. It's community. It's home. It, this is like family. This is where we come to like leave everything out on the dance floor. This is where so much healing happens. But this space has also been feeling the intrusion of gentrification for years. On warm days, people used to dance outside in the parking lots around the building. Those lots are now high-rise apartments. Most everyone has experienced the change, including Christina. It's starting to be crowded, like around the rebar, and it's starting, and I just like things are being built around it, and I just hope it stays here for another 50 years, 75 years, because um, it is a community place. It is like a, a space that is used by artists. Everyone seems aware of the pace of change in the city. Ade, a singer, curator, performance artist, and employee at Rebar for over 15 years, knows that the venue situation is precarious and that Rebar's days may be numbered. I'm in it for the long haul and I love this place. And once it's gone, we'll have memories of it. But what are you going to do? Ade says Rebar is pretty much their home. It's been a family to me, you know. I've, I've made so many important connections and so many important relationships from I've gone through new relationships and breakups and death and loss and rebirth and weddings and God knows what here. So it's just really, it's, it's my home. Rebar's Night Flammable is famous for attracting a community of all types. It's also well known for its tradition, the red lamp. When at Flammable, you'll often see someone go up to the DJ and hit the hanging lamp above the turntables. Dancers hit it to show appreciation or because they like a track. This started back in the vinyl days when a dancer wanted to show their appreciation for the music and stay away from the turntables, which would skip. The lamp slap was a form of validation that DJs would receive, but it also preserved that moody underground vibe. Instead of flashing clubby lights, there was a single red light. It became symbolic and was a perfect acknowledgement from dancer to DJ. Wesley Holmes again. You know, when we first put up the red light, it was just a way to keep a really small, dark, intimate light over the DJ booth, and that's it. We wanted to be kind of like this anti-big light, um, big light, big club kind of feel. Everyone has a story about the red light. It's become iconic. Emily Griffin, also known as Griffin Girl, says it's one of the few places with a dialogue between the crowd and a DJ. Having someone tap it and having that interaction with the audience as, as, a, as a DJ is, is golden because it's such, a, it's such an immediate response for the crowd's, the crowd's feeling the music. And um, 
I just love the crowd participation part of it and feeling like they're part, they're all, everyone's part of the show. Many of these traditions are decades old, some dating back to the opening of the bar itself. Dane Garfield Wilson has owned and operated Rebar for seven years. He's also a current resident DJ of Flammable and bought the venue because he felt it was a really special place. When I came up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, we had one gay bar and it was an old gas station. And that was it. And I really liked electronic music and they had one night that you could go when you were 18 years old on Sundays, just like Flammable Sundays here. It's where I heard that music. And it was always a really safe space to go. It had amazing music. And when I came out here, I saw that all those people in all those tiny little cities around the country who had that one little bar that used to be an old gas station all came here. And they created this safe space here. And that's why we continue on what I would call due diligence in the community, providing a place where you see groups that you don't ever see come together. Dane sees that spirit at Rebar. For example... And one time I was outside and talking to new people in front and asking them how they found out about the event. And this guy came up to me and he said, I'm a gay black anarchist Satanist. And when you move to a new town, like, how do you find out the place to go? And I came to this, like, Neil Gaiman, Doctor Who, Star Trek, queer boylesque show that was followed by Flamble, and I think I found my spot. And I don't know if I've ever seen that guy again, but I do it for that guy every single day. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Rebar is currently closed. Like most music venues, Rebar is experiencing the heavy weight of restrictions on large gatherings, but it's still producing live streams, including Flammable, on Sunday nights. It's not the same, but the self-proclaimed longest-running house music night on the West Coast keeps going. For Sound and Vision, I'm Charlize Metcalf. KEXP DJ Riz Rollins has been DJing at Rebar since it opened 30 years ago. He spoke with Charlize about the history behind the venue. He started by talking about some of his favorite tracks to play at Rebar. I think the artists, particularly back in the day that I used to play, the most often was Soul to Soul. I played Soul to Soul every single week. And I would tell myself every week, don't play that, God, people are sick of it. And then I would get toward the end of the night, it's like, no, I gotta, I gotta play Soul to Soul. The vibe back then was both awesome and tentative because Rebar, for not being a gay bar, the door people were not just gay people, they were drag queens. And, you know, we had a pretty out there gay staff. And for a lot of people, Rebar was the first day of school. First time they'd ever been to a gay bar. First time they would ever even want to go to a gay bar. But it was an extraordinarily mixed crowd. Like I said, the first day of school for a lot of people. And I mean, the first day of school, you had to learn how to be in this club and do this thing and be open about it for both gay people and straight people. He wouldn't like me to tell it, but I remember Steve Wells, a wonderful person, Pitt Kwasinski with the owners at the time. And at some point, Steve came up to me and he said, you know, we got to talk about this music and turn this music down because, you know, there were conflicts, there were fights, fights would break out from time to time. And Steve said, you know, I got people in here talking about burning down my club and I just can't have it. And I said, who? You mean like arson? He said, yeah. I was in here, they were, they were talking about burning it down. I said, 
You mean the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water. Let this burn. Yeah, that. I said, dude, really? Serious? No. <laughs> They're having, you want them to do that. That's the sign that this is really happening. This is off the chain. It's awesome. But so we all learn how to be around each other. And I'd have to say that I met some of my best friends still there. I, I, I can't tell you how many close relationships I've had there. Can you talk about the community that is Rebar? Now? And then. It's, it's essentially the same community. Because it was a, a mixed use space, there was a lot of theater. Dan Savage did plays there, a lot of plays there. Uh, I saw, I happened because I was there every week, I happened to see a lot of plays. My favorite being the production of uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch with Nick Garrison, who is still the best Hedwig. Easily, hands down, uh, every week. They did Shakespeare in drag there. Dina Martina, who is now an internationally known show, started was, was actually bartending before Grady West, before he decided to do Dina Martina and is now making a living from doing Dina Martina there. I want to ask about what else was happening in the city besides Rebar representing queer, gay, diversity? Rebar was it. It, it was it. it. Uh, you, know, you know that they also had bands. I f- forgot about the live music part of it. And they had homegrown bands. Uh, one of their big historical things was doing uh, Nirvana's record release party for Nevermind which I DJ'd at, which uh, legendarily had to stop because Kurt and uh, Chris had a big food fight, and Steve was not having food fights up in that bar and escorted them out, stopped the party because of it. But it was a, it was the place to go. There was nothing like it. Then there's nothing like it now. And if you... Rebar was one of the places that you could go to not knowing what they were going to be doing. And ended up, they were doing something seven days a week. So, Rebar's different now. Yeah, okay. A little bit in terms she of... She's grown. She's grown. You know, yeah. she, was a, she was a baby. She was a teenager. Because uh, people that come from other places, but she's she pretty grown now. Yeah, I definitely am not trying to say... I mean, well, what was happening back then isn't happening now. There are different things that are there happening are. now. And different places. Mm-hmm. Rebar and opened the door to all of those things that happened at all of those places. And the people that we've talked to have the fondest memories of the place, but not just memories. Like they, they love being there now. We talked to a variety of people, you know, from like people who – you know, have just started going to Rebar within the past, like, five years. People who have been going there for a really long time. A long time. And they talk about how accepted they feel, mm-hmm. how safe they feel. Mm-hmm. What was one of your first experiences where you were just, like, in heaven? The first time I went there. The first night that I went, I, I knew it was going to be a regular place for me. And I wasn't a DJ. This was going to be a place that, that I feel comfortable. I'm going to hang out. 
the acceptance as a DJ from the very beginning, even though I was crappy, was pretty awesome. And then I would have, I can't tell you how many amazing things that would happen to me. Just one. I was DJing one night and I was in it and I realized that I was running out of songs. I didn't have anything queued up. I didn't have, I didn't know where I was going to go next. And I don't know what I'm going to do. So I reached in my little record crate. I used to carry like three crates of records. And I reached and I said, I'm just going to make a break in the groove. I'm just going to play whatever's next. So I reach in my crate and I pull out the Muppet movie, which Rob, my husband, had snuck into my crates. And I'm standing there with this record and thinking, okay, I'll play something from the Muppet movie. And I got a, a, a crowd full of people. I put it on, and it was Rainbow Connection. I've been teary thinking of it. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? You could feel it viscerally through the room. And the next thing I know, people are holding hands. I get teary even thinking about it. They're holding hands. They're singing along with it. And, and I'm clutching the pearls. Right? I'm sitting there like, what's happening here? And then now it's a staple for me. You know, I can always get them with Rainbow Connection. I need tissues. <laughs> I had to wipe my little face. Someday we'll find it, the Rainbow Connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. We bar not for everybody. No places for everybody, but more importantly, it has really been there for the large part of disenfranchised people that couldn't either play house music or be drag queens or be LGBTQ, as uh, Dina Martina calls it. The large swaths of the BLT community have no place else to go. Dina Martina, God, the BLT community, God, the running of the gays. Oh, my God. I learned all of these things from being there. It, it, I'll say I was 35, and it was also the first day of school for me. It, it's essential to, to my adult life, even though I was an adult at the time. It's, it's essential. That was KEXP's Riz Rollins speaking with Charlize Metcalf about the venue Rebar. Rebar has announced that it will take an 18-month hiatus and open back up in the fall of 2021 at a different location in Seattle. Meanwhile, other local music venues are struggling under Washington's extended stay-home, stay-healthy order. Last week began Phase 1 of Washington's four-phase approach to reopen up the economy. Phase 1 was mostly focused on reopening outdoor activities like trailheads and boat ramps. But nightclubs and concert venues will be the last to reopen. They are part of Phase 4. And it's unclear when Phase 4 will actually happen. I caught up with three other local independent music venues last week to find out what this stay-at-home order means for them. My name is Jody Eklund. I'm the co-owner of the Clock Out Lounge on Beacon Hill. We were about to celebrate our two-year anniversary when this happened. So we had a weekend full of events for our two-year anniversary. We loaded up on our booze inventory, and we're ready to have a, a you know, celebrate a milestone. Instead, we had to close the bar down. <laughs> I mean, the reality of it is 
it could be as much as six months before we have a full calendar of events. It's going to take most of us up to six months to get back to where we were six weeks ago because of how we, we work on a calendar system, meaning that like most of the agents that I deal with and all the shows that I had confirmed are now being postponed until late fall and into 2021. Most of my national touring acts have canceled and are now being pushed into 2021. We're not going to see ba touring bands coming through. We're going to be heavily reliant on our local artists, which is great because they always need a platform to play as well. Um, but I just, I think it's pretty bleak to be honest. Um, it's scary. Uh, hello, I'm Adam Wakeling. I am the general partner of The Crocodile here in Seattle. I've been there since 2012. So I think the general consensus is that if we reopen anytime this year, it's going to be super limited capacity. And it's not going to be a lot of touring bands. It's going to be local bands, which is great, but it's a limited, it's a limited resource to, to pull from. Because uh, everybody's going to be wanting to get the local bands, the local bands, DJs, and whatever else we can try to do um, to get something going. Do you have any sense of when you, you know music venues in the Crocodile might be able to reopen? You know, I, there's always all this wishful thinking thoughts that hey, maybe in the fall, maybe by October. And then you know, the more you look at things, the more that seems like uh, a fantasy. I mean, it's hard, it's difficult to say, but it seems like it might not be until next year. Um, I, we keep thinking, like, okay, cool, we're going to get some sort of limited capacity situation going, and we can we can do stuff this fall. But a lot of the stuff that is already rescheduled until the fall is rescheduling again to next year. So, what do you think all this means, like for the crocodile? Like, how long do you feel like the crocodile can continue to do this, like not being open? Like, do you feel like you are? Do you feel like you guys are at risk at all of having to close permanently? Oh, hundred percent, we're at risk. You know, if I don't know, I mean, it's it's super challenging. I mean, we have some stuff that we're trying to work out with the landlord on a couple different levels, but obviously, there's you know, there's money involved, and if we're not able to see a light at the end of the tunnel and know when we can say, okay, this is it. We can't just keep throwing money into the wind. Um, we're a renter right now, you know, we're on a lease. So there's nothing we can really do. Even if you ask your landlord, Hey, can we put this off till later? I mean, what's that going to do for us? You know, later all of a sudden we're gonna have a giant bill, you know, it, it needs to, it needs to come from the top down and it needs to be fair for everybody. Both the Crocodile and Clockout Lounge have restaurants attached to their venues. Under Inslee's four-phase plan, restaurants will be able to open at less than 50% capacity during phase two, which venue owners are interpreting as operating at 25% capacity. Eklund of Clockout Lounge is still struggling with what opening up at reduced capacity would even look like. If we're at 20%, 25% capacity, we're going to have to really look into doing some live streaming events and with a very limited audience, you know, and then I'm trying to figure out how am I going to put people six feet apart on a stage and how are you going to sing into a microphone with a mask on? I mean, there's just a lot of things to think about that I don't have the answers to. It's hard enough being a brand new business owner 
and trying to navigate that. And then I never thought I'd be navigating through a pandemic. When I asked each venue if it even made financial sense to open at 25% capacity, they all had similar answers to what Adam Wakeling of The Crocodile had to say. No, not at all. I mean, to me, it's a morale booster. It's, uh, you know, getting some people feeling like things are semi back to normal. Financially, no. The venues I spoke with haven't seen much in terms of financial relief. Pretty much the only relief they've seen so far is a federal loan called the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. We got ours today, so the original parameters were that we had eight weeks to spend that money, 75% on payroll, and the other 25% on things like rent and utilities. I mean, that's not even possible if we can't even open, you know. So from what I understand, they're changing the parameters, they're changing the time frame. I don't know the specifics of that yet, and that's something I'm actually going to look into today since we finally got this money. Other than that, it's a 1% emergency loan um, that I will try not to spend unless I really need to. But at this point, it looks, pro- looks like I'm probably going to need to to just survive. Uh, hi, I'm Dan from the Tractor Tavern. Dan Cowan owns the Tractor Tavern in Seattle's Ballard neighborhood. He says the PPP loan almost seems like it's unhelpful for businesses and employees. There's no reason for me to rehire all my staff uh, for two months, then put them back on unemployment um, right now with the $600 a week bump on unemployment um some of them especially the part-timers are making more than they would if i yeah it just would seem wrong coronavirus isn't the first struggle tractor tavern has faced cowan says he's seen a lot through the venue's 27 years in business our first sold out show was a benefit for a dog that needed a hip replacement they're better at booking successful gigs now But Tractor has also faced financial hits, like getting gouged with a huge financial fine during the last economic crisis. The Tractor, we got nailed with a quarter million dollar bill for an audit from the Department of Revenue saying we owed sales tax on all of our ticket sales. And it was in 08 during the recession and um, Department of Revenue found some very old language and they hit up a bunch of smaller clubs and uh, proceeded to tell us we owed a quarter million dollars. And eventually we settled for about $100,000, but I still had to pay it. And I didn't want to go. It took two years. And, you know, it was just a really stressful time. This, it's happening to everybody. So um, personally, I feel like I'm rolling with it pretty darn well. Cowan, like many venue owners in town, doesn't own the building he's in. So the biggest assistance he and other venues can get right now is relief from their landlord. And Cowan says he's lucking out in that department. My landlord's being great. We haven't really decided on what I'm going to owe them, but they'll probably make some adjustments. And I don't have to actually come up with the cash right now, although that could change. I don't want to put them on the spot, but... um, So right now I'm paying some basic expenses to maintain the place, uh, the venue. And I, you know, I have savings. I have, you can take, I could dig into that. And, you know, I I could do it for months, a couple of years even, you know. Um, 
I don't know. It just depends on after a while you go, hey, the place isn't worth that much anymore. But I'm really determined to reopen the tractor. If nothing else, I'm going to get it reopened and that's I'm going to do it. But even if venues can open, the big question is, what will their spaces even look like before there's a vaccine or medicine to treat coronavirus? I think you just got to wait science out a little bit and see see what's possible. I mean, if face masks and, you know, I mean, we can wipe things down. I mean, if people have to wear face backs, of course, we want them to buy beer. They got to move their face mask to, to drink some beer or a cocktail. Um I don't know. I, I think it's it's early days, really. You know, it's only been eight weeks. I know it seems like forever, but we are talking about, you know, six months to 12 months to allow this to kind of play out and figure out what's going to be safe. Yes, there is a dark side that it might not be that we're able to open up for a great length of time, but um, we'll see. Venues are all uncertain of what the future holds. The Tractor Tavern, the Crocodile, Clockout Lounge, and many more local independent music venues recently formed the Washington Nightlife and Music Association, or WANMA. They're asking folks to contact their U.S. senators and representatives and ask for five things to keep venues alive. That's to give venues cash assistance instead of loans, rent and mortgage forgiveness and reduction, financial payments and assistance for the workforce, tax relief, and insurance relief and revisions. Here's Jody Eklund again from Clockout Lounge. I mean, the reality of this, Emily, is that the small v- venues do face imminent risk of permanent closure. And that's why we're asking for immediate s- assistance. Uh, the music careers start in our independent music venues. Without them, the opportunities for the artists and the music fans will no longer exist. And that is the reality of things. Um, small music venues... Is- are assisting in developing the artists and nurturing their fan base so that, you know, I heard a larger artist say like, once you've gotten to the place where you've, you're playing the show box, you've, you can make it out of Seattle. So it's really extremely important that we save these independent music venues. And there's really good work going on on behalf of WAMA. It's really inspiring to see everybody working together and pulling together. Um, I do believe we're making progress and we're just still fighting to get the work, you know, it's, it's really about fighting to make sure that the public understands the grim reality of what is going to happen if, if we are not able to get some help on rent assistance, mortgage freezes in some cases for some people, uh, tax relief, all, all those five points we discuss, we are in a really desperate situation. You can find out more information on how to support local music venues at wanma.info. That is W-A-N-M-A dot info. Meanwhile, I have one more hot take on how independent music venues could be impacted by coronavirus in the long run. A few weeks ago, on the broadcast version of Sound & Vision, I checked in with the local venue Nectar Lounge. It's been doing high-quality live streams of concerts from their stage in Seattle's Fremont neighborhood recently. Mario Abada, one of the booking managers from Nectar, had this prediction. I think there's a few different ways that things will change in the kind of immediate aftermath of this. There's certainly some industry folks, you know, predicting on the industry level how things will change. And a lot of that discussion seems to be centered around that 
it was already a difficult landscape for independent uh, venues and independent promoters, and that a lot of them are going to probably be the hardest hit by this, and a lot of them are probably going to go under, and that in the wake that is left by them, a lot of the corporate, larger corporate entities will take over a larger part of the kind of the market when it comes to music. Uh, so like the, the AEGs and the AEGs and Live Nations of the world, basically. Yeah, probably, probably, you know, as uh, some venues vacate their spaces in the aftermath of this because they don't, you know, survive for whatever reason, potentially those entities swoop in because they're they're the ones that were left. You can read more of that conversation at KEXP's website. We posted a link to that conversation in the details page of this podcast. Well, that was Sound and Vision. Before we go, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I would love to see five more ratings by the end of the week and two more reviews. I hope you will be one of those people to do that. If I see your name in one of the reviews, I'll try to give you a shout out in one of the next Sound and Vision podcasts. Because rating, reviewing, and subscribing to podcasts helps other people know this podcast exists in this very much podcast-saturated world. So again, champion the show by taking those two minutes now and subscribe rate interview to sound and vision it would mean a lot but most of all thanks so much for listening we'll chat more on thursday